All right. And if you have your Bibles with you, let's go ahead and open those to the book of Luke, chapter 9. And we're going to be in verse 7 starting out this morning. Um, again, still enjoying our time in Luke on Sundays and on Wednesday nights, just taking time to, to walk through it, um, learning together, being encouraged together uh, by the word. So there in Luke chapter 9, and we'll start in verse Seven, we'll cover the rest of chapter nine, hopefully, Lord willing, Wednesday night. But it says there, when Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, heard about everything Jesus was doing, he was puzzled. He was perplexed. Some were saying that John the Baptist had raised from the dead. Others thought Jesus was Elijah or one of the other prophets risen from the dead. I beheaded John, Herod said. So who is this man about whom I hear such stories? And he kept trying to see him. And I wanted to start here and we're going to read some more, but I wanted to start here. You've got Herod and you remember who Herod is. He's the ruler of Galilee, the Jewish ruler in conjunction with the Roman occupation. He's ruling and he's the one that beheaded John. He's sitting in his palace and he's hearing reports about Jesus, about what's going on with the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is going about preaching the, the good news of the kingdom and people are being healed and miracles are happening. So word is getting around and it gets back to the palace. If you remember, even Herod's business manager's wife was a follower of Jesus and supporting him in his ministry. And so he's hearing this and it says he was perplexed says he was puzzled. Who is this person that I've been hearing about? And that word perplexed me. He, he was just over and over, over time. He was just he's just thinking about what he's hearing. And, it, and he's entirely at a loss that it's just a, a what in the world? Who is this? What's going on? This word was apparently unique. Luke, the writer, only it was the only New Testament writer to use this word that translates into puzzled. Or perplexed. He used it four times, once here and three in the book of Acts. But Herod's saying, who is this man? Is this John resurrected like some people are saying? Is this Elijah come back from heaven, back to the earth? Is this an, a prophet of old that's been resurrected from the dead? Because remember, they had gone a long time and there hadn't been a prophet. There hadn't been anybody who spoke from heaven a message from heaven. He's like, who is this? I got to think he's thinking, you know, is this a threat to me? Because I cut John's head off. Is he back? Like he's, he, he's just thinking, what in the world is this? And you remember why he did that to John. It was, it was terrible, terrible thing. But it says he kept trying to see him, kept trying to see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus. Herod, the ruler, sitting in his palace, kept thinking about Jesus trying to puzzle out who this person is that I keep hearing about. Says he wanted to see him and he couldn't. And then we're going to move forward just a little bit. If you, if you read on and we'll talk about it Wednesday night from verse 10 uh, through verse 17, it talks about Jesus feeding 5,000 people with just a little bit of food. An incredible miracle. And we want to talk about that. But what we're going to move up to verse 18 in, in this same mindset. It says, one day Jesus left the crowds all the ones he had been feeding and preaching to, to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. 
Some say Elijah and others say you're one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. So who do men say that I am? He's talking to the guys that are close to him, the, the 12. Who do men say? And they use the same list that Herod was thinking through, right? Some say you're John the Baptist, come back. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the other prophets of old, come back into present day. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, I guess, either was nominated the spokesman or he just always jumped out to be the spokesman. But he said, you are the Messiah sent from God. Your translation may say, you are the Christ, which means the anointed one. You were sent from God to us to save us and to deliver us. So you see a big difference between what Herod and others were seeing and saying about Jesus and what Peter and the disciples were seeing and saying about Jesus. Herod and the others, well, he's a man. He's like John or like Elijah. He's like one of the prophets of old. He's sent with a message. But Peter said, no, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're from God. You're unique. You're promised. You've come to save and to deliver us. So that's what Herod was saying about Jesus, what he was thinking about Jesus, what others were saying and thinking about Jesus, and then what Peter and the other disciples were saying and thinking about Jesus. So the next question is, what do we think about Jesus? Who do we say that he is? Does it matter? Is it important? And if it is, how important is it? And that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to quote some old guys this morning. The first one I want to quote is A.W. Tozer, T-O-Z-E-R. He wrote a book in 1961 called Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book, he wrote, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most portentous fact about any man, which means a warning sign, a direction of who this is and where they're headed. The most portentous fact about any man is not what he may say or do at any given time, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. He says, what you think about when you think about God, what you think about when you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. It's the biggest sign, the important sign of where your life is headed, what's going to happen. And then he explains why. He says, we move toward our mental image of God. Whatever we consider God to be like, whatever we think about when we think about God, that's what we move towards. And he says, the mightiest the mind can entertain is the thought of God. And we know that. We know when we think about God, when we think about who he is and how he is, it can bend our brain because he's so massive and so powerful. He's saying we need a true view of him, him high and lifted up, holy and powerful. And when you have that, it will affect the way that you walk. It'll affect the way that you speak. It'll affect the way that you interact with others and the way that you live and the decisions that you make. Who do we say that he is? Who do you say that Jesus 
is. Is he another great teacher? Was he a good leader? Maybe he was a prophet that he came with good things to say. Maybe he was a revolutionary. Maybe he was just a good guy, right? Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you say those things or do you say he is the son of God? present at the beginning of creation, responsible for it, that he's incarnate, put in flesh and blood clothes like us, sinless and without fault. It matters what we think about Jesus. And, and what Tozer did a good job of saying, the most portentous fact about us is not what we may say or do at any given time, but what we think about when we think about God. Is our view of him high? Is it true or is it low? and erroneous. And I saw a, a, a sad example of a low view of Jesus uh, this week or a false view uh, of, of him. And some of you may, may have seen this. Uh, one of our cable news networks, uh, popular hosts, host of CNN Tonight, uh, Don Lemon was, was making an argument. And I'm not trying to dunk on Don Lemon. All right, I, I just want to share with you what he said to use it as an example. He was, he was making an argument about something, okay, the founding fathers or something, and he used in his argument a point about Jesus. And what he said was this. He said, Jesus Christ, if you believe in, if that's who you believe in, Jesus Christ, admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth. He said, Jesus Christ, if, if you believe in, if that's who you believe in, Jesus Christ admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth. And he was using it as argument to say, we shouldn't expect anybody else to be perfect. We, we shouldn't hold anybody else up as perfect. But I, and I didn't watch the program, but I saw the clip later, obviously. And, and I flinched at that because again, I might say, you know, it, it's not trying to dunk on him, but he, he has a big platform and speaks to millions of people. And, and this is his view of Jesus. This is his thought on Jesus. And, 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 and he invoked uh, the name of Jesus in his argument, but, but he obviously doesn't have any idea who he really is. He doesn't have any idea who he, he really is. He said Jesus admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth. Now, when you say admittedly in a sentence like that, you're saying someone has admitted it, usually the person who you're talking about. Well, Jesus never said that, right? I don't know who else has admitted it, but it's certainly not Scripture. Scripture says in the book of Hebrews that Christ, our high priest, understands our weaknesses because he faced all the same testings, but yet was without sin. And it also says in 2 Corinthians for God made Christ who never sinned to be the sacrifice for our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And again, it's not trying to dunk on him because he unfortunately, sadly, tragically, he's not the only one that holds a low view or an incorrect view of Jesus. He just happens to have a large and very public platform, speaks to millions of people. And ever since Jesus came on the scene, came on the earth, there were people misunderstanding him. There were people misjudging him, refusing to receive him for who he is and who he said that he was. And again, since he came on the scene, the spirit of the world wants to reduce him 
to somebody else just like them. Why? Well, because if he's nobody important, if he's just like me, then what he says isn't any more important than what I say. If he's nobody important and he's just like me, what he thinks isn't any more important than what I think or what you think. And if he's not any more important than me, then his view of my life, his view of my sin is just his opinion. And it's arguable at best, right? An opinion you can argue. And so if, if I reduce him and I take his view of my life and reduce it to just his opinion, arguable at best, then I render the salvation that he promised unnecessary. You see how, tra how tragic a low view of Jesus can be. You can say, I don't need that. I've reasoned, I've determined that, that I am in charge of my life. I know what's best for me. I, I, I've figured it out. I know what's best for me in my life. If I don't want to receive him as Lord, then I have to minimize him to something less than a Lord. If I don't want to receive him as God and King, I have to minimize him so that I can disregard all the truth that's in him. Because see, here, here's what happens. If I acknowledge him as who he said that he was, then it requires something of me. It requires confession. It requires repentance. It requires allegiance. And I don't want to give that away, right? My heart, my sinful heart doesn't want to give that away. And the spirit of the world will always want to minimize Christ so that it can justify stealing his seat. It will always want to minimize Christ so that it can refuse to listen to what he said. It will always want to minimize him so that it can be Lord over its own life and destiny. You know, because we do such a good job when we're the one in charge of our life. But that's what sin wants to do. The easiest definition I use for sin is our attempt to be God in our own life. To take his place, to do what he should be doing in our life, to sit in his seat in our life. Sin is any time we try to displace him from that. So who do we say that Jesus is? Because how we perceive Jesus, how we receive him, it doesn't define him. We don't get to change him, but how we perceive him changes us. How we perceive him defines who we are. It molds us. It shapes us. It shapes our mindset. It shapes our decisions. It shapes our speech. It shapes how we interact with other people. It changes everything about us. We can't touch him. A low view of him doesn't hurt him, it hurts me. So who do we say that he is? Herod and those many others that Jesus asked about that they said, you know, well, he was a man, he was a teacher, he may be a prophet, right? Maybe some special insight, some special knowledge there. But, but then they usually stop. And you hear people all the time, well, he was a good teacher, he was a good man. Well, was he God in the flesh? Oh, well, I don't know about that. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. And another old guy I want to quote is C.S. Lewis because he points out that Jesus doesn't give us the option of just thinking he was a good guy. He doesn't give us the option, the way out of just thinking, well, he's just a good teacher. 
And he, uh, he wrote a book called Mere Christianity, or it was actually a collection of uh, interviews and specials he had done on the radio in 1952. And I've got in my notes here, I've taken my cue from Tim to read this quote from my phone. <laughs> so that's what I'm gonna do. Cause it was a little bit longer and I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna write anything wrong on it. And he says, again, talking about this in the book, Mere Christianity, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is a son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so you see what he's saying. He's like, when you have someone who has said that they are the son of God, you don't get the out of just going, they're a good teacher. He's saying if he's making that claim, he's either crazy, he's a liar, or he's God. It's one of the three. That's Lewis's argument. It's one of the three. With the statements that Jesus has made, he has painted you into a corner that you have to decide he's either crazy, an awful liar trying to deceive people, or he is actually who he said that he was. He doesn't give you the out of saying, oh yeah, he was just a good teacher that you can listen to if you want to. And then he finishes up. He says, now it seems obvious to me that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And he's right for our mind and for our, us to receive that it can be terrifying. It can be intimidating. But I love that argument that he makes. And you'll see some people, you know, the, the lunatic liar or Lord argument by, by C.S. Lewis. And it seems so airtight, right? You're like, man, you just tell people that. Ooh, that you just got to pick one of the three. And of course, you know, after, and then again, that was in 52, so people have had a lot of time to think on it and talk about it. The, the atheist response to that is, well, we don't believe the Bible, so we don't believe that he said he was God. It's just insane. It's like good grief, right? How can you fight so hard against something that you don't want to be true? They just exercise so much passion in fighting something that they don't want to be true, but yet is so true. And Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say this, some say this, some say this. And he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. What do you say? What do you say? What do y'all say? Why did he ask that? Was he insecure? Hey, what are people saying about me? No, he's pointing out because it matters what you think of when you think about Jesus. It wasn't going to define him. 
It wasn't like he was going to go, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I'm glad they're saying good stuff, right? No, he knew it would define the thinkers. He knew it was going to define them and change the way that they thought and acted. He asked because it matters. Now look at verse 21 and 22 as we keep reading on in this same line. Right after Peter says that, it says, Jesus warned his disciples not to tell anybody who he was. He said, the son of man, which is a way that Jesus referred to himself. Remember I told you, he, he, that's what he used to talk about himself. And we're going to talk about that one day soon. And, and it's, it's good. The son of man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He'll be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed. But on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. So he's asking them, who do you say that I am? Because what you think matters because there's some stuff that's going to happen that's going to be overwhelming for you. It's going to be tough for you. It's not going to be the way you expect things to go. So see, when Peter said, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're come from God, he still didn't have the fullness of the understanding of what Jesus was there to do. In his mind, Jesus is going to lead us as an army to overthrow Rome, to overthrow the government that has come in and, and persecuted us. And we're going to be free again and we're going to run things. And that was his mind. And he was like, you're going to be really thrown for a loop when they crucify me. So I'm letting you know it's coming. It's going to happen. I'm going to be rejected by everybody and killed, but on the third day will be raised from the dead. He's saying there's going to be some things happen that you're not going to understand yet, but you hang on to who you know that I am. You hang on to what I said during the times when you don't understand. When things happen, we don't understand. It's important that we think rightly about God because our hearts and our minds want to understand things immediately. But see, that's not faith. It's not how faith works. Faith is holding tight to the word that you've received, even when things happen that you don't understand or are different than what you expect, even when there's difficult things taking place. And you're like, why? Why can't I just understand it? And, and, this example came up this week. Just think about how long it's taken you to understand the natural world that you live in, how things work, how long it's taken you to learn that. And you would still say you're not a pro at hardly any of it, right? The more you learn, the more you realize there's, that you don't understand. And that's just the natural world that God created, right? We don't even always know how electricity comes into our house and works. But we're trying to understand the deep things of God and what he's doing. No, you need to explain it to me. I can understand this. Like, come on. You lost your keys last week for a couple of days. Right? Look how long it's taken us to understand just what we understand right now. We shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. And, and that faith is going to be holding on to what we've received from him, looking at him the right way when there's things going on that we don't understand. He's like, there's going to be some things happen that are going to be rough. Hang on. And then it says he turned to the crowd. Look at verse 23. He turned to the crowd because he's been talking just to the disciples. Verse 23 
on down to 26. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the son of man, there he goes again, will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the father and the holy angels. Amen. So he turns to the crowd and he wants them to think rightly about him too. Why? Because following him, he talks about following him. Those that want to follow me, this is what it's going to look like. If you follow me, it's going to have a deep and profound effect on everything that you are, on everything about you, your whole life. It's going to require and compel a reaction for you to do something. It's going to require you and compel you to die to yourself and be more alive to Christ. And it's not going to be an easy thing to walk out. He says you have to tie to, you have to turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross daily. Now, I always thought that was Jesus hadn't been to the cross yet. Like we think of it from later on looking back. What, what would they have heard when they hear that? Take up your cross every day. Take up your electric chair every day. This method of execution, take it with you. He's like, what in the world? If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will be saved. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? What do you get if you get all of this, but you didn't think rightly about this part? What do you gain if you inherit the whole world but forfeit your soul? It's not easy to walk that out. As I follow him, I'm going to have to let go of things. I'm going to have to let go of certain people. I'm going to have to let go of certain ideals. I'm going to have to let go of comforts that I was used to, that I felt insulated me. I may even have to let go of a dream. I want to go here. I want to be that. I want to do that. It, it may completely change. And am I willing to let that go for him? See, the Christian life is costly in a worldly sense. It's costly and it's growing more costly every day for the Christians in America. And it will continue to grow more costly every day for the Christians in America. It's not going to go back to where Christian morality legislated everything. It's not. Christianity is going to be pushed to the margins. And it's going to be difficult. But guess where Christianity grows the best? In the margins. Under persecution, you're like, yay! Right? But when those difficult things come about and it gets harder to walk this walk, he said, you have to have a right view of me because if not, you're going to think wrong of me and it's going to cause you to falter and to stumble. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. So you, you ask yourself, why would we subject ourselves to such a great cost if we didn't see a great Savior? And the answer is you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't give up your life for just something, for just an idea. They gave up their lives, men and women, 
all through history have given up their lives for the call of Christ. You don't do that unless you've seen a great Savior. Think about Pastor Alvin talking about how many decades he's been in missionary ministry. You don't do that unless you have a high view of Jesus Christ. Because you experience great cost, pain, loss, just all the things he outlined that they dealt with last month. But they have their eyes on Jesus and so they've, they, they've continued through it. They've continued through, continued to preach, continued to love, continued to care, and continued to shine the light. And Christ labels that as giving up your life for his sake, which is truly saving your life. He said, if you try to preserve your own life, you're going to lose it. But if you, for my sake, give your life, you'll save it. And we live that too, obviously to a different degree but, but we've been changed. We've seen him by faith and it has shaped us and it's defined us. It's beginning to mold us and we have to hold tight to that right view of Jesus. Even through our inability to understand in the immediate. Again, we want to understand things right away. We, we, there's a lot of things we don't understand. We hold on to him through that time. We hold on to him through difficulty, even loss in this world and in our life. And, 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 and we know that even through that, he's better. And that this, this world around us is going to change on the regular. Things are going to be changing. It's going to be chaotic, but he doesn't change. Amen. He is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And he never will change. He's always there. He's our constant. He's our all-sufficient. And we hold on to that. And I don't, i got to figure it out. i gotta, I got to figure out who Jesus is. No, he, he walks us into that. And that's why he puts us together. So we can encourage each other in the scripture. We can encourage each other holding tight to the truth that's been passed down to us by the generation that came before and making sure that we're able to pass down to the next one a clearly defined, undimmed, untarnished, truth of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. This is what he came to do. This is what his mission is on the earth. It hasn't changed and that we hand that to them. We can't give them anything more valuable because our thoughts of Christ don't define him, but they do define us. Herod was perplexed and I'm finishing up. Herod was puzzled. Who is this man? He wanted to see him, but guess what? He never did. He never did open his eyes to who Jesus really was. And what we, what we found out about Herod in history, that this Herod, is that he died in exile. He was removed from his office. He lost his family and he died in exile, literally, and then also figuratively, spiritually, he died in exile. One more quote, one more old guy. This one's from 1753. He died in 1752. I'm not sure when he said it. A man named Johann Bingel. That's one you might not have heard of. And I, but I just loved it as I, as I came across it. He, he said, those who have not faith are liable to be miserably carried about by the opinions of others. Those that have not faith are liable to be miserably carried about by the opinions of others. How much does that define our society today? We're just being thrown 
by this person's opinion, this opinion, this opinion, this stops us mentally, physically, and emotionally. And he, he called it back then, 1700s. He says it's miserable to be carried about by other people's opinions. He said it's so important that we have faith. And you see that misery in Herod's puzzlement, his, uh, his perplexion about who Jesus was versus the firm and joyful confidence that we even saw in the disciples. Once it really settled with them after the resurrection, this is who this is. They were willing to face down anybody, anything. I love the story, you know, because they all ran. They all got scared. They all ran. They were like, oh, but he, he was right. They wouldn't understand. They didn't know how to handle it. They all ran. But after he was raised, they came back together. And after the Holy Spirit lit the fire on the inside of them, the same men that ran at Pentecost, there were thousands of people around. And they all just stepped out and said, we're about to tell y'all about Jesus. The one that y'all crucified, the one, we were scared. We were scared y'all going to kill us too. We ain't scared no more. Why? Because they had a high view of Jesus. Their view, it, it was defining them, shaping them, molding them, and they had been empowered by the Holy Spirit on the inside to say, I don't care what y'all do to me. I'm going to tell y'all the truth. And it said many were pierced to the heart, and they said, brothers, what do we, what do we need to do? <laughs> what do we need to do? You see the difference, Herod versus Peter and how it ended up. And again, Peter did have to take up his cross. He did have to endure violence. But in the end, his life was saved. I thought about this and I'll end with, with this. My whole life, which I understand, I'm, I'm still young. I still say I'm young. My whole life, there's never been another one like him. There's never been anybody I could trust like him. Never. Nobody else. Just him. A lot of good, a lot of great folks. A lot of great things. Never anybody like him. Not even close. It's not even close. So who else should I trust? Who else should I trust other than him? He asked his disciples, he said, who do men say that I am? And he listened. And then he said, okay, okay. What do you say? What do you say? And so that's what we want to end with today. Who do we say that Jesus is? Amen. Amen. Andrew, if you'll come up, I'll pray. And I want us to sing together before we, before we go. Let's cover this in prayer today. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. The word incarnate. There at the beginning came for us. Like we read out of Hebrews that he's our high priest, that he understands the weaknesses we feel because he lived through them, but yet was without sin. And that you made him who had never sinned to be the sacrifice for our sins so that we could be made right with you. We could be united with him and then we can commune with you. God, I thank you that you continue to build out a right view of who you are, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, your character, who you are, what you say, what you do, that we will have that in front of us, Father, to be able to hold tightly to when things happen that we don't understand. You are our anchor. When we deal with difficulties and trials and tribulations in our life, that you hold us fast. I thank you that we won't 
fall under the opinions of those of this world, but that we'll hold tight to the revelation that we've received in Jesus Christ. That He came preaching the good news of your kingdom of which we get to be a part. And I thank you that we will be mindful of that in our life, that we'll hold fast to it in our life, but we'll be able to be compassionate to those who haven't yet seen you, that think about you like Herod did. Who is this? What what is this about? And they're perplexed and they're puzzled and it's hurting them because they're trying to bear the weight of all that you are in their own selves. And Father, I thank you that you'll help us to be an encouragement, a light, ministering the same kingdom that we've received from, that we give it away. And in the giving away, we don't lose, but we gain even more. I thank you. I thank you that you form the way that we think, that you form the way that we respond. You form the way that we love. You form the way that we endure. Your good and your mercy endures forever. God, thank you for your church. Thank you for giving us a place to come and join together so that we hold on to you together. You've called us to follow you. You didn't call us to do it alone. I thank you for that. I thank you that as we go from this place today, that we go in peace and unity together with one another. Lord, that we're strengthened and full of peace by having been together today. Lord, those who are who are separated from us but joining us online, I thank you that you are right there where they are with exactly what they need. I thank you that as we go into this week, it's with a soberness and an awareness that you are God and you are there. And I thank you that you draw us in closer into the scripture, into prayer, into the fellowship of the saints so that we can see you more clearly and that it'll bring up joy and love on the inside of us. God, we pray for our community. We pray for our country. Lord, relieve us of this virus. I thank you, Lord, that you'll protect us and keep us safe. And Lord, I pray that you you relieve us from, from the chaos and disorder, the divisiveness and the anger. I thank you, Lord, that you bring peace and that you bring it out of us. I thank you that we carry calm with us into the situations that we go into and it will rest on those places. I thank you that it'll be different amongst your people and it'll be evident to those who see it, that there is a God in heaven, that they'll see our good works and glorify you. We love you. We thank you. And we rejoice in who we know you to be. In Jesus' name.